0: Matthew chapter 13. We're doing a series on the parables of the kingdom that Jesus teaches in this, um, in this chapter. We're looking at the second parable this week. We've, we looked last week at the parable of the sower. Uh, this week we're looking at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So read with me. I'm going to read verses 24 to 30 where Jesus tells the parable and then we're going to jump down to verse 36 and then Jesus explains the parable in verses 36 to 43. Matthew 14, verse 24. 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In verse thirty six. Then he said Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The man who sows the seed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers." And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Oh God, give us grace. Give us ears to hear today. Let the light dawn on our hearts, Lord, let there be conviction and change, and let there be even salvation today, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When we, Sheree and I, bought our first house in Kempton Park, it was a little bit of an oddity within the neighborhood. It was a really small, um, old, Cape Dutch-style house with a thatch roof in the middle of suburban Kempton Park. And what really attracted me to the property, to the house, was the size of the garden around this little house, as well as the smallness of the beds. So there were these little beds on the side, no flowers or anything like that, nothing that I was going to kill within the first couple months of living there. There were hardy plants and a lot of grass for my kids to play on. And I thought, that'll be easy. I won't have to worry about it. I'm not going to kill anything here. And nobody taught me or told me how difficult grass can be. So we had a... a Uh, drought a while back, a few years, and um, uh, the grass started to die and to wither and fade and eventually when the rain came back things got green again quickly, but it it was one of those situations where it looks beautiful from far, but when you're walking on the lawn, what we saw everywhere was weeds. And I thought, let me get in and, and dig these weeds out. And I dug and I dug hour after hour, but I just couldn't get to all the weeds and eventually this weed started to take over the lawn. Now, a man's lawn, in a sense, is his domain, right, his kingdom. And so I would drive off to work every day, and my, my lawn would mock me as I left, mock my rule. Or well, you we took the job here in Hillcrest, and we don't have any drought problems here. Um, there are days where you forget what the sun looks like, but there certainly is enough rain. But guess what? My lawn still has weeds. I realized unless you have green fingers or special, if you're a grass whisperer or whatever, unless that's you, you're going to be fighting weeds in this life. This side of the new heavens and the new earth, that frustration will be a part of life. No matter how much joy the garden brings to your family, there will always be that frustration as well. And in our parable, Jesus does something absolutely amazing. He uses a similar picture In fact, where the stakes are higher. Something worse than a little weed growing on your lawn to describe what his kingdom is like in this age. You'll remember from the last few weeks we've discussed how Jesus came as the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king that would rescue his people and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And when he walked the earth, we saw displayed the power of the king Miracles, healings, casting out of demons. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000 and they were all testimony to the fact that the king has arrived. He has come. And there was excitement around Jesus. But that excitement began to fade when he opened his mouth and spoke about what the kingdom of heaven is like. When he talked about the kingdom in a way that contradicted what their hopes would be for the kingdom in their lifetime. Jeremiah 31 gives this picture, prophesies a day when God makes a new covenant with his kingdom people, when he writes his law on their hearts. And Jeremiah says they will know him, all of them, from the greatest to the least. And so after centuries of enemies who oppose the rule of God, After centuries of internal struggle, idolatry, and sin, this hope had built a hope for an age where God's law would be written on our hearts, on the new covenant people, and that kingdom would involve freedom from that kind of struggle, freedom from the pain of sin, ours and others. And we know Jesus will one day come. He will return and He will establish that kingdom in its purity. He will establish the ideal where we dwell with God without pain of sin. But in Matthew chapter 13, what He's doing is He's reordering our expectations for the time being. Between the first and second comings of Christ, our new covenant experience, living as citizens of His kingdom, will be mixed. Joy and pain, righteousness and struggle. The new creation at war with what is passing away. And that idea took getting used to for the disciples. And aren't there days where we as well struggle in our faith? We struggle. You say that I've been made alive with you. I've been raised with you. I've been seated with you in the heavenly places. But I look around at my situation. I look around at the world and evil abounds. My own sin entangles. It looks like the weeds are growing everywhere. We feel the exasperation and the impatience of the servants in this parable, saying, how can this be so many weeds among the wheat? How can this be what your kingdom is like? But in this parable, Jesus is calling us to patience, to trust. He's calling us to surrender and the faith that follows even through that frustration, we would follow into a glory that makes the wait worthwhile. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so as we look at this parable, you can divide it into these three seasons, three stages of kingdom growth. And we're going to do that. And it will help us to know what it means, again, to live as loving citizens of our King as we patiently submit to Him and follow Him. The three seasons are the sowing, the growing and the harvesting. So number one, the sowing that reminds us to rest in the goodness of Jesus. Read with me verses 24 to 28 again. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So like in the first parable, we have another agricultural picture here, seed that is sown into a field. And we're blessed because, like the first parable where Jesus goes on to explain the meaning of that parable, he does the same in this one. And it's a good thing because the analogies all shift in this parable. Here there are two sowers, not one sower. And the sower is not just a a general identification for those who who sow the seed of the word, the two sowers are specific. The first sower is the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, and the other sower is the enemy, Satan. The seed is not the word that is sown, but an actual people. The Son of Man sows good seed into his field. They are identified as the sons of the kingdom. The field is the world, he says, where the kingdom grows and where it spreads. But an act of agricultural sabotage, the enemy comes under cover of darkness and he sows seeds of his own among the wheat. The weeds called in verse 38, the sons of the evil one. And in the same field, they will grow up together, wheat and weeds. And so there are two, two truths in this passage that run parallel to one another and do not contradict one another. The first is that there is a good sower. He is sowing good seed, and that seed will produce a harvest. And the second truth is there is also an enemy who wants to destroy the harvest. He sows bad seed that will lead inevitably to pain, And struggle and conflict for the sons of the kingdom. And Jesus highlights the craftiness of this enemy. He comes unnoticed by sleeping servants. In malice, he wants to frustrate the harvest. He knows if I can plant weeds in among the wheat, they will sap resources from the wheat. He wants to hinder the growth of the wheat. His aim is to hinder the harvest. Satan does this. This is his, his desire, his goal, be it through outright persecution of the church or subtle division within the church. Either way, he wants to crush the life of the church or slowly choke it out. Satan wants to spoil the harvest, to ruin the master's work. It's an act of rebellion, of vandalism, of defacing the master's property. What the enemy wants is to make the sower look bad. This has always been his tactic, right? Even from the Garden of Eden, he comes to Eve, and what he wants to do is discredit the Creator. Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree? Why is he trying to withhold good from you and restrict you and limit you? Isn't that our conflict with the world today? And Eve responds, we we can eat from trees, just not that one tree in the garden. He told us that if we eat from that tree, we would die. Die? You will not surely die. You can't trust Him. His word is unreliable. And so this promise to Adam and Eve of a, a wonderful meal turns into the reality of death as they fail to trust the Creator His tactic has always been the same. His tactic is the same in this parable. Spoil the harvest and tarnish the name of the sower. We see it in the questioning of these audacious servants. They were the ones who slept through the whole ordeal. And then in verse 27, they say, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Did you check the seed before you sowed it? There's Satan's aim, the honor, the glory, the reputation of God. He wants to defame and undermine him. And he wants to discourage us. Look around you at everything that's going wrong, everything that's evil in the world, everything that's going wrong in your own heart, and your own life. And sometimes you're weighed down by the weight of that evil to the point where you ask, aren't you a good farmer? Aren't you a good sower? I heard a man this week um, say something along these lines. He said it a lot more colorfully, but basically he said, "I, I cannot believe in God. Too much bad has gone wrong in my life. Satan wants to discredit the sower's name even in the life of the church, even in the church. Scholars point out that the weed Jesus is talking about here most likely is a poisonous weed called the darnel weed. And in its early stages, it's actually almost identical to wheat. You can't tell them apart very easily until they reach maturity and start to produce fruit. Then you can say, which is weed and which is wheat. And so, isn't that true also even in the church? That you can't always see what's going on in people's hearts. Even in the church, the wheat and the weeds grow together. And sometimes what happens is the world looks at the church and they see this. They see a a counterfeit Christianity. He drinks from that coffee mug every day with his favorite Bible verse on it. But I know how he treats his employees. I know how he he cheats people in his business practices. Well, I know she's a, a leader in a team's worship band. And yet here she is with us doing the same things. Speaking the same way, living the same life, and the world thinks smugly, well, if that's the difference that Jesus makes, I don't want anything to do with him. Purity and faithfulness in the church is it's not about us, it's about the glory and honor of the Savior. But what Jesus shares here is not just a warning to us, it's also meant to be an encouragement. We long for the kingdom to come in purity and in righteousness. And Jesus is telling us for a while, the wheat and weeds must grow together. We are to expect this as a deliberate plot from the enemy. It's interesting that even in the second and the third centuries in the history of the the church, you see in the writings of the church fathers, they must have been taking criticism. Pagan critics wrote to the church fathers saying basically the same thing. Christianity cannot be true because you're all just a bunch of hypocrites and sinners like we are. And they wrote back saying, What you describe is not proof that Christianity is false, but proof that it is true. Jesus told us to expect this. Peter and Paul and other New Testament writers told us to expect it. It's Satan's ploy in the church. Those who profess to believe but who do not actually love the king and do not follow him. What you're seeing is just the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. In church, Jesus is preparing our, our hearts here for life in the world. Don't despair at the evil that you see. Check your heart and and make sure your anger is focused in the right direction. Check your heart. Does my life, does my life in the world coincide with my profession of faith? Am I living in submission to the King? That is what you are to ask yourself. And when you feel weighed down by the weight of evil that you see around you, even evil in your own heart, even evil sometimes in the church, Make sure your anger is focused in the right direction. We tend to think of our enemies in purely human terms. Policies and people that want to stifle and persecute the church. Difficult people within the church. They are not the enemy. Paul confirms this truth in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, do not be surprised by it. The Christian life is a war zone. If you are a Christian, you're engaged in a spiritual conflict, not only um, for, you don't only fight for your own life, but for the lives of those who are lost in darkness. And we don't need to despair. We can have confidence. The sower is not surprised by what's happened in his field. The servants may have been sleeping, but he was not asleep. It is his field. He knows what's going on. He hasn't made a mistake. He isn't panicked by the weeds. He is the son of man. That is Jesus' favorite title for himself, isn't it? And it harkens back to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel 7:13 to 14 this prophecy Daniel says I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed The Son of Man is mighty. He is reigning. He is conquering even now. And in the face of the enemy's malice and his best attempts to defame the glory of of God, it is the Son of Man who sows good seeds still. He is planting the church in the world. And he promises a harvest. And he promises that the church will not be destroyed, but will in fact prosper Satan's rage cannot derail the son of man's designs as he sows his good seed. It's as Martin Luther wrote in that famous hymn that we sing, A Mighty Fortress, though this world by devils filled should threaten to undo us, we shall not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him." His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And Christian, how wonderful, isn't it? When you think of your life, your faults, your sins and your struggles, how wonderful that he calls the seed good seed. It is good because it belongs to him. And it is precious to him. Bought by his sacrifice and his blood. In the the days where you feel the sting of evil, days of pain and corruption and looting and chaos in the world, days of betrayal, when you are let down by people and let down even by your own failures, we can rest still in the goodness of Jesus, in his strength and his wisdom and the certainty of his victory. It was a joy today to sit in front of Derek. (laughs) to sing in front of Derek. And Derek and Marilyn are going through, I wasn't going to share this, Derek and Marilyn are going through some trials right now, but to hear him sing out with his voice loudly, 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Resting in the goodness of Jesus. Thank you, Derek. Number two, the growing that calls us to patience and mercy. The servants have noticed the weeds in the field. And you would expect weeds to be in any field, but they see that the ratio is not right. Something has gone wrong and they fear disaster. And so in verse 28, these servants who had been sleeping while the enemy sowed his seed believe that they they have amazing confidence in their ability to solve the problem. Should we go out and pull up the weeds and gather them? And the sower says in verse 29, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers. He's saying, I'll bring in specialists. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Let them grow together for now. There will be a time of separation, but it is not now. Jesus is teaching his disciples that in order to live as citizens of his kingdom, that longing that we have for the purity of the kingdom, for the righteousness of the kingdom, it must be held in tension with a patience, a patience that actively seeks the good of those around us. Now they would learn this lesson ultimately when their Savior went to a cross. And the king shed his own blood to save them, and not only them, but all to whom they were sent. See, the fact that Jesus allows weeds to grow until the harvest means mercy, doesn't it? It's mercy. Mercy for those apart from Christ, that the harvest has not yet come, that it is still future. This is what Peter was talking about when he was talking to people who thought that Jesus was slow in his second coming, because here we are 2,000 years later, still waiting, and we feel that sometimes. Why are you so slow? Peter says, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is calling the church to repentance in every age. It was the patience of God that meant possibility of reconciliation for the rebel. It was his patience and divine forbearance that passed over former sins. It was his patience, if today you find that you are wheat and not weed, it is his patience and kindness to lead you to repentance. It was his patience in response to your rebellion that found you lost and led you to the cross where we sing here, where I beheld his love displayed. He suffered in my place. He bore the wrath reserved for me so that now all I know is grace. It is his patience that delays the judgment so that the full number of the sons and the daughters of the kingdom may be brought in planted in his field by a gracious sower that is you and me 2,000 years later, his patience that we would be included in his kingdom. So when you feel disappointed in the state of affairs of the world around you, maybe even when you feel disappointed in the church, beware the pride that forgets there is no one righteous, no, not one. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are patient because God is still saving sinners. And so in the season of wheat and weeds growing together, there are a couple implications for the way that we live our lives. Firstly, as I've said, I said last week and I said the week before, when we live in the world, we live as exiles. That is true. We are to be different. We are to be holy, but we are to seek the good of the world. We do not shut ourselves off to the world and say, we don't care about you. That can never be our attitude. Jeremiah was prophesying to Judah the inevitability of Babylon coming and taking them into exile. In chapter 29, verse 6 to 7, he says to them, While you're there in Babylon in exile, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. While we live lives that are different, we live in the world, not, not out of fear of the world where we compromise and make our lives match the lives of those around us, but we certainly don't live in animosity to the world either. We live in the fear of the Lord that seeks the good of the world. And secondly, it has implications for how we live in the church as well. The sacrificial, merciful, long-suffering that Christ is calling us to as we go out into the world, He certainly calls us to that same in the church. There are many in the world who look at the church, they see in the church hypocrisy and counterfeit Christianity, sometimes just a general dysfunction in the family of God, And they use that as an excuse to have nothing to do with it. Have you ever heard that said? I I love Jesus, just not the church. I love Jesus, but not the church. True believers can never have that attitude. Our Savior has not given us that option. Now, will you face disappointment and hurt in the church? Absolutely, you will. Not all are sheep. There are wolves, there are goats as well, the Bible says, and even the sheep sometimes bite one another. And that can hurt, it can be difficult to bear. What do we do when we are hurt in the church? We take that hurt to the cross. We see the one who bore the reproach of sin and shame, my sin and shame on his shoulders. The one who shed his blood for my trespasses and sins. And as we long for the church to be all that he intended it to be, holy and pure and devoted to him, even as true believers, we long for the same, that we would be more of what he intended us to be. We need to be careful. False expectations can lead to disillusionment in the church, even an unhealthy discontent, an ungracious discontent. Ligon Duncan, in a sermon on this passage, said this, Jesus has not said that the visible church will be perfect. In fact, Jesus has said the opposite. Understand that if we are looking for the perfect church in this life, you know people, right? I'll just jump from church to church to church, looking for the perfect church. If we are looking for the perfect church in this life, it's not because we have a higher view of the church than Jesus. It's because we have a view of the church that is contradictory to that of Jesus. Jesus has told us that his kingdom will be mixed in this life. Are you today struggling with a critical spirit? When you look at the things that happen in the church, when you look at other Christians, does a critical spirit fill your heart? Ask the Holy Spirit to do business with you. Go home and look in the mirror and ask the Holy Spirit to do business with your heart. That'll help you to be more gracious and kind to others in the body of Christ. Now, does that mean that we Neglect or downplay the purity of the church? Absolutely not. Not if we take seriously this final season. Number three, the harvesting that drives us to loving confrontation. Drives us to loving confrontation. At a Desiring God conference some years ago, Sinclair Ferguson gave an excellent talk entitled The Biblical Basis for the Doctrine of Eternal Punishment. And he opened this talk with a story. He said a few decades ago, a royal princess was coming out of a cathedral service in England. And she was speaking to the the dean of the chapter of that cathedral. And she said to him, is it true, Dean, that there is a place called hell? And he apparently replied, Madam, the scriptures say so. Christian people have always believed so. And the Church of England confesses so. To which she responded, then in God's name, why do you not tell us so? It is a message that we don't like telling because we know of the anger that it elicits in the world. And there certainly is a time and a manner in which we are to speak the truth in love. And there are times where it might be better to be silent, but are we embarrassed? by the words of our Savior. These are not just the words of your crazy Baptist pastor. These are God's words in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. In verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God has been patient, and he allows the wheat and the weeds to grow together for a time. But as Puritan Richard Baxter said, we must not misinterpret God's patience with the ungodly to mean that we can be apathetic towards the reality of hell. So this parable leads us into yet another tension. We are to be patient with everyone and gentle with people. Not careful in our desire for purity in the church. We need to be careful not to damage the wheat, but patience and realistic expectations in the church does not mean apathy. It does not mean indifference towards sin. It does not mean a failure to warn. It does not mean the cowardice that never confronts sin. Matthew 13 does not negate. Matthew 18, Jesus' prescription for church discipline. Again, Ligon Duncan says, The Lord Jesus is not engaging in a polemic against church discipline here no more than he is telling gardeners that they should never pull weeds out of their field. But he is saying that the focus of his servants in this age must be to patiently deal with those who are tares, even while they gently deal with those who are weak. We deal with sin because we love one another. Church discipline and holding each other accountable. That's not, those aren't judgmental acts. Those are acts, loving acts that seek to prevent the eternal destruction that Jesus is talking about in this passage. A destruction that will come for some after a life lived in unrepentant hypocrisy. There are people who will stand before him, having been in church week in and week out, who will will have to depart from him because they never knew him. He never knew them. We love one another because we take sin seriously and HBC, we can grow in this, right? And I'm not just talking about how we talk about sin behind the pulpit. I'm not, I don't just mean how we sing about the holiness of God, the forgiveness of the cross. I mean in the way that we relate to one another, in the culture of the church. We are on the one hand to be accepting and loving and say, come to me, I will embrace you. Come as you are to Christ and as you are to me. And on the other hand, we say together, we will not remain as we are. We will deal with our problems. Is there anyone in the church that you know you can go to with the the deep and dark problems you have in your heart? There should be. We need a culture of that, right? And this parable, it, it warns us, but it also encourages us greatly. The state of the church and the kingdom may be less... Or from our perspective, less than we had hoped. And we feel at times powerless and fragile in a difficult world. We feel vulnerable and weak before our enemy. But Christ is not worried. He has planted good seed and he is planting seed still. And that seed will bear fruit. That seed, that good seed will persevere to the harvest. And the harvest will result in glory. Verse 43 Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. While now the wheat might seem dusty and apparently frail, even hard to distinguish from the weeds. How is this for a promise? They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. When we are there, we will not shine in a righteousness that is our own. We will shine in a righteousness that has been given, a Savior's righteousness in exchange for the sinner's transgression. We will shine with the joy of seeing our Lord face to face. We will shine with a glory that we are reflecting His glory upon us to the praise of His grace forever and ever. Let Him who has ears, let Him hear. What are you today? Are you a son of the kingdom? Are you a daughter of the kingdom? Or are you a son or daughter of the evil one? None of us need face the fearful future that is described in this passage. The same son of man who's going to dismiss the weeds into the furnace of eternal judgment is he himself who endured the furnace of divine wrath at Calvary that you need not go through this fate and endure it. All you must do is trust him. You can shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father if you will only cling to Christ as your Savior today. Do not let this opportunity pass. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, um, Father, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that in a room this size, With this many people, it is dangerous and foolishness for the church to assume that all are wheat. That all know you. That all love you. And so God, we plead. We cry out to you by the power of your spirit that you would do a work of salvation in people's hearts right now. A work that only you can do. And Father, I know that when we leave this place as your children, I know that we will be tempted to go and live our lives in our little corner of the world, being quiet about the the deep and meaningful things, the important matters that we should be speaking about. Oh Lord, have we written off the people in our lives who are lost? God, please forgive us. Forgive us for being silent when we should speak. Make us bold. Holy Spirit, help us to love the lost enough that we would be urgent for their souls. Fill us with your Spirit and lead us into mission, we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to read a benediction now before we close our service. Um, But I want to invite you, if you need prayer for whatever reason you feel the weight of evil um, pressing around you in your life through the sins of others or through the sins in your own heart, there will be people available in the front to pray with you. Um, If you need prayer for anything else, come forward for that as well. And in addition to that, I would say to you, if you are not sure whether you are wheat or weed, Do not leave here without speaking to somebody. I would love nothing more than to chat to you about that, to talk about salvation and the gospel. Don't let this opportunity pass. Philippians chapter 3 from verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen.